Here we go. In three, two, welcome to the Ephesiology Podcast, a podcast dedicated to the study of the early Christian movement and its implications for the church today. Welcome back to another episode. Uh, we are with Michael, our resident Ephesiologist, Andrew Johnson, Associate Pastor at Neartown Church in Houston, Texas. And I am Matt Till, lead pastor of Restoration Church in the Chicago suburbs. Good to be with you guys again today. And we are going to be exploring uh, this idea of in the anatomy, the anatomy, not to the human body, the anatomy. This is in biology class where we're going to dissect uh, frogs, but we are going to be doing a little bit of movement di- dissection and we're going to be looking at the anatomy of a movement. That was Michael, quite, take, quite clever. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> Michael, take us through it. What, what makes a movement? What makes a movement? And that, so that's what we've been studying. And, you know, it's interesting because a lot of people are talking about movements these days, as, as we've been talking about um, church planting movements, disciple making movements. And you have in, in uh, our society uh, all kinds of claims to movements, the, the Me Too movement, the um, I mean, we talk even going further back, civil rights movement and so on. And so there's a lot of talk about what movements are and how they form and um, talk about a life cycle of the movement and, and so on. And I discuss this in, in the book as well. And what I end up suggesting in the book is that movements don't, if they're genuine movements, they, they don't have a life cycle. It's not a, a, a process where you know, they're born and they go through these different stages as Bloomer uh, back in the 60s was indicating. And then eventually they they either decline or die. Uh, but rather, what I'm suggesting is that a movement really has a rhythm to it. And we have to understand uh, that rhythm, particularly when we're talking about a movement in Christianity. And uh, if we somehow miss that rhythm, or we're, we're not in sync with a rhythm, then we will end up dying. And, uh, and so Christianity then becomes more of a cause than it does uh, a movement. And so, um, and so we want to think in terms of the, uh, the, the rhythm of a movement. And that rhythm is just very simple uh, rhythm. I mean, it's a, it has to be a, an evangelistic component to it. There has to be a discipleship component component to it. Uh, there has to be the development of leaders and the continued multiplication and the sustaining of the growth. Just to clarify too, Michael, uh, is that what we are talking about here today is in fact the movement of God's people, right? We're talking about the church. The church is a functional group and, and movement of people is in fact a movement within itself. Um, the called out ones, uh, those who are followers, disciples of Jesus, uh, the church not as an institution, but the church as a people is, in fact, by definition uh, and theolog- uh, theologically is, in fact, a movement. And these are the components that we're talking about today are those theological components to making that movement. Yeah, and not just the theological components, but even the, the missiological uh, components, the practical uh, outworking of it. And so as, as we've been talking about, the, if we were to think in terms of this rhythm, there is what I've argued in the book, five components to it. There's a launching of it, and we've unpacked what that means in previous podcasts, and hopefully do a better job in the book uh, of unpacking this. But there's a launching of that movement. There's a grounding of it or trying to address what is it that a movement believes? 
And, and this is where and we started this conversation in the last one, and we've got to get back to this because I think that this is critical. This is the hermeneutical question. Um, how do we understand what it is that that early church believed? Because what that early church believed is really what propelled them forward in continuing this movement. And so if our, our foundation uh, of believing is off, then the, 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 there will be a correlation between that teaching, that grounding and what we eventually become. And so if, if, uh, we're grounded in a missiological theology, then we're going to continue on God's mission. But if we're grounded in some some other theology, an institutionalized theology, and in, yeah, an institutionalized theology, then that's what we're going to become. And so there's the the launching of it, the grounding of it, and then there is the leading of it. And again, that's critical. And we've uh, hinted at this uh, on a number of occasions that uh, a movement will, to some extent, rise or fall based upon those who are leading it and, and the way in which the movement is led. And so if the movement is being led in an institutional model, and uh, we were getting at this with Alan uh, uh, two weeks ago now, um, talking about the, the APES, the Apostle, Prophet, Evangelist, Pastor, Teacher, or Shepherd, Teacher, um, that we have built upon um, our current structures are built upon the shepherd teacher model. And, and so that's what we end up becoming. Uh, and and uh, what we're trying to recover is this collaborative model of leadership uh, that also includes the apostle prophet evangelist. And that seems to me to be one of the keys in the continuing of the movement in the new Testament is that we can identify uh, the, uh, specific individuals in the New Testament who were apostles, prophets, evangelists, and shepherd teachers, and that they functioned corporately as a team that advanced uh, the movement forward. So the launching, uh, the, so this rhythm is the launching, the, the grounding of it, the leading of it, but then the multiplying of it. Um, and the building into the lives of disciples, sound doctrine, and uh, and the identity that they are on God's mission as well. And so it's multiplied. And then finally, the sustaining of it and what that looks like. So let's get into some of these, uh, these uh, principles for the anatomy of a movement. Uh, the first, Michael, is exponential growth. Yeah, so one of the characteristics that we see in the movement in the New Testament is that it grew exponentially. Um, again, uh, these are the things that we've talked about uh, on previous podcasts. But in order for us to understand that fantastic growth that we see in the uh, early New Testament movement, we have to understand uh, this idea of exponential growth. So it wasn't just adding disciples but it was the multiplication of disciples. And so, for example, when Paul talks about it with Timothy, that uh, entrust these things that you've heard from me to others who will teach others, there's a multiplication there. And that was an expectation that Paul had, not just on Timothy, but on all of the guys that he was discipling. And so as we look at, for example, um, those who were involved in the movement in Asia, there were about 23 uh, individuals that Paul was building into 
and their impact was very significant as they took the things that they learned from Paul and they taught others who would also teach others. And so there's an exponential growth that is a part of uh, what we see, a characteristic of a movement. Uh, a church leader might be listening to this now or thinking about exponential growth. Um, they may be thinking, man, I'm just trying to grow by two or three families this year, um, maybe 20 or 40 families this year, wherever they are in terms of their uh, size and capacity. Um, is that the kind of exponential growth we're talking about? Is is every church um, adding you know 10 or 15 families a year to their churches and doing that in some sort of random collective? No, um, is that the kind all. of growth we're talking? No, not at all. What we're talking about is growth that that, that can uh, occur as the saints are empowered by the Holy Spirit and as they're proclaiming the gospel to others and as the disciples are being made. Um, and then those disciples are making more disciples. So exponential growth is um, it has this idea that disciples are making other disciples who will continue to make more disciples. And so it's multiple multiplicative. I always love that part from uh, from Wayne's world where Wayne is saying, well, they tell their friend and they tell their friend and they tell their friend. And so you have Wayne multiplying. And so, you know, the one becomes two and the two becomes four and the four becomes eight and the eight becomes 16. And, and, you know, the cacophony of the sound of all of these Waynes saying, and they tell their friend uh, who tells their friend who tells their friend. And, but the reality is, like it is kind of that funny, simple math type thing. When when one person tells another person and then those two people are telling other people, you know, we are increasing the number of speakers. In the last episode, I went on a very small but passionate rant in regards to all believers, all disciples uh, preaching the good news of Jesus Christ. This is a math discussion. If you have a pastor who is essentially giving the good news, he's only going to tell everybody who's listening in that room. And so even in a good room, you might have a thousand, 2000. Okay. It's great. I'm saying in a good room, I'm clearly going big with this analogy. If one person and 2000 people that got to hear it. Well, what if those 2000 people then went out and shared the good news that week? That's, that's 2,000 additional people. So the room just doubled because everybody who was there said, you know what? My theology is a missiological theology. I know that I have been empowered by the Holy Spirit to bring this good news to everybody. I am a faithful person who has been entrusted by other faithful people to entrust it to other faithful people. And now I am going to go and share the good news. This multiplicative effect is going to go far more, far wider than just one pastor on a Sunday preaching a sermon. It just, it, mathematically speaking, it, exponential growth is, is desirous, and it is way bigger than just one person sharing the good news. Yeah, absolutely. And How here, do we... Here, yeah, here, I mean, I, just thinking about the numbers, here's the interesting thing. If every Christian, every person in the world today who identified themselves as, as a Christian would share the gospel and see three people come to Christ, the entire planet would be Christian. Isn't that interesting? But we know that that's not the reality. Um, right. Wait, how does that math work? Walk that out. That's a really nice, fun little thing. But how does that work, mathematically yeah. speaking? Well, I work it out in the book, so <laughs> I don't want to work it out on the book. Nice. 
Yeah. Good solid plug. Matt, what were you saying before we cut you off? No, I wanted to ask a follow-up question and that is how do we balance and hold the tension of this? Because uh, what we're talking about here about movement dynamics in the the anatomy of a movement, this is not another church growth strategy. Am I correct in that? Correct. Absolutely correct. So, so how do we hold that intention where somebody says exponential growth? Uh, oh, I need to be a movement to grow my church, to get more people in my building, to have more people show up, to replace, uh, you know, the older generation, bring in young families, tithe, give, and fulfill all the things that God has put on our plate and serve the poor and all these other things that we've committed ourselves to doing. How is this not another church growth strategy? Yeah, good. That's an excellent question because exponential growth is a result. It is not a strategy. And, um, and we have to, and that's so important for us to remember because, you know, there will be people that are trying desperately to see the kind of growth that uh, movements are experiencing in different parts of the world and to see the kind of growth that we see in the New Testament and they just won't see it. And oftentimes, at least what I've, what I'm finding is that they don't see it because they are trying to apply it as a strategy rather than uh, understand that it's a growth. And so um, I love, you know, for years and years ago, I was on the staff with Crew. And of course, I came to Christ in uh, the ministry of Crew when I was a student in high school um, and then throughout college, uh, being a part of Crew. And one of the things that Bill Bright used to say in, uh, about witnessing was this. This was his d- definition of successful witnessing. He said, successful witnessing is taking the initiative and the power of the Holy Spirit and leaving the results to God. That's what we have to do. You know, Paul, um, when he writes to the church in Corinth, he says, you know, Apollos uh, planted, I watered, but it's God who causes the growth. And so we have to, and this is so important and such an emphasis on what we're trying to do with the physiology is that it is not about us. We're trying to direct everything to God. It's for his glory and God wants people to worship him. And so what he's given us as a responsibility is to join with him to faithfully witness, share the gospel with other people, with everyone that we can encounter, and let him work in their lives. So the key to this is for us to to ask God, just like uh, Jesus promised, uh, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. Ask God to be empowered by the Holy Spirit and uh, be used by him to faithfully Mm. communicate the gospel message to others. So what if I've told people, what if I have faithfully witnessed, what if I have gone out and and told people about Jesus and I've tried to have those gospel conversations frequently, what if people in my church are doing that and we are not seeing exponential growth? Who do we blame? Who's at fault? Yeah, well, that's a great question, Andrew. And I mean, there's so much more um, to unpack in that because there are all kinds of variables. But uh, the, the one thing that I think is important for us, and again, this goes back to that rhythm of a movement. Um, how we launch a movement is going to largely determine what that movement will look like. And, um, and so it's critical for us as we are thinking about launching a, a movement um, that we understand how to effectively communicate the gospel to uh, the people that uh, we're engaging. Mm. And, and I think that that was just huge, by the way, like, I think what you just said there was very important for us to to grab hold of again. I don't mean to derail your conversation, your thought there, Michael, but like, I'm just listening to that and going, yes, how we start needs to be the way we intend to finish. 
And how we communicate is what's going to communicate not just about us, but what the gospel ultimately does for its mm. pe- for the people, which it intends to reach. Is I'm just re- restating in different words what you just said. That's good. How we start is how we need to finish, and or how we intend to finish is the way we need to start. Is another way to put that. Yeah. yeah. And and I I honestly don't think that we've we've given that a whole lot of thought at, in many regards. Well. Or we haven't given it the proper thought. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think people are thinking about it. And, you know, we keep alluding back to Alan's uh, podcast a couple of weeks ago, but he made the comment that um, if if we are using an attractional model to win people to Christ, and that's what's then that's going to be their expectation yeah. uh, in terms of uh, their future uh, understanding of Christianity. Yeah. And so if we're using these extravagant models, uh, that to win people to Christ, then they're going to expect something extravagant uh, from the church. And I, I mean, the gospel isn't extravagant. Uh, I mean, it's not dropping Easter eggs from a helicopter. It's not um, doing these it's not balloons and confetti cannons well, and yeah. light shows. That's not the gospel. That's not, it's not extreme sports guys riding around on a motorcycle in a cage. Yeah. Um, it's yeah. not, even the, you know, the, the concerts, uh, by wonderful Christian artists. I mean, that's, mm-hmm. yeah. And so we have to get to the, to the place where we are able to connect Jesus's story to the story of our culture in such a way that they understand that it's one story. So I think, uh, all these questions are going to be answered in some of the following points of the anatomy of a movement. So let's move on to the second one, uh, mm. Michael, and that's indigeneity in say it for me. Yeah. Indigeneity. <laughs> indigeneity. Thank you very much. In other yeah. words, being indigenous, right? Indigenous. Indigenous. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Just, just said, I'm going to mute my mic now and you guys talk. So, yeah. Michael, what is yeah. indigeneity? Yeah, good. Indigeneity is this idea that uh, the gospel becomes a part of the culture that it's engaged, and um, and the 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 manner in which we are able to do that will determine whether or not Christianity is looked upon as a foreign religion or it look it's looked upon as uh, the, who uh, the, the people are. Uh, religiously speaking, and um, and so that's that's a critical characteristic of of a movement, and that is something that we have some level of control over. Um, the way, just like we were talking, the way in which we present the gospel, if it isn't done in a in a in a uh, way that connects Jesus' story with the story of a culture, then more than likely Christianity will be looked at uh, as a foreign culture. Um, we talk about this beautiful example of the gospel of John and how John had this really inspired, well, obviously inspired ability to connect uh, the, the stories of Jesus's life with the people in Ephesus. And he does it in such a beautiful way. I mean, it's so profound to think that here he introduces uh, the gospel with this logos idea. Andrew, you preached a wonderful sermon on this uh, several weeks ago, but he connects that logos philosophy with uh, Jesus, that Jesus is the word uh, made flesh. 
and uh, and he's relating that back to the philosophy of Heraclitus, who wrote 600 years before John shows up on the scene, but whose philosophy was still very much a part of the lives of the people in Ephesus. And so but John was able to connect Jesus to that story. Um, and so we have to strive to do that. And, and that's what a missiological theology is trying to do. It's looking at what it is that God is doing in a culture and beginning to make those connections uh, between his activity and the story that we know of about Jesus. And I think it's critical, everything that you just said, because the focus then is on uh, indigenous. Uh, we're talking about the gospel being indigenous, not just leaders. Because I think typically when we start talking about indigeneity, we're talking about, well, we want to make sure that the leaders who are finally leading this church, that we've, you know, we, the missionaries have come and we have handed it off and now it is a local thing. But this is even, I don't want to say further, but this is a whole lot deeper. It is that the gospel has made its way into the culture so that it's as it is the good news of Jesus Christ is for these people and from within, not outside. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and, and it's, it's uh, the idea that the people that hear the gospel understand that it's good news for them and they were, they respond to it. Um, yeah. So how about on to the third point of um, the anatomy of a movement, um, social and economic impact on a community? Yeah, that I mean, one of the incredible things that we see in the city of Ephesus was exactly that. And Matt, you make reference to this uh, uh, in an earlier podcast as well, that there was this incredible social impact. I mean, it, it the gospel... Uh, that changed the lives of people who were of other religions. Uh, I mean, in Ephesus, it was the worship of Artemis that was impacted. Uh, it changed the intellectual lives. You know, Paul was teaching at the school of Tyrannaeus, and uh, and Luke tells us in Luke uh, in Luke in Acts nineteen ten that as a result, uh, the word of the Lord was heard by every resident, and. Um, and so there was an intellectual uh, the change uh, that occurred, an impact that occurred, and there was a political one. Um, now, this, was a, this is an interesting one. It was, there was a political impact in as much as people were influenced by the gospel. Not that they began to take on some Jesus agenda to change the, the political nature of a culture, um, but people's lives were changed. And as a result of people's lives being changed, uh, the, the society changed. And so Paul, we see, has this beautiful relationship with the Asiarchs. But even further on, as we go to look at Paul's imprisonments, I mean, he has an incredible relationship with uh, the, uh, the, those who imprison, imprison him. And why is that? Because, it, it, because this is key. Because Paul knew that he had been called by God to take the gospel to the Jews, the Gentiles, and the kings and rulers. In other words, he knew that he was to be on God's mission to take the gospel to everyone, every place, uh, no matter where he was. And he did that. It strikes me as interesting when we were talking to Alan, I think I asked this question off mic or we had a nice conversation afterwards, but what if we ask the question, are, or is the gospel 
is there gospel saturation? Is the gospel moving forward? Are people coming uh, to know Jesus as King? Um, however you want to phrase that, instead of saying how many Christians have been made, asking a different question from a societal uh, vantage point, um, have, has the suicide rate gone down? Mm. Um, have the number of people who are both poor and marginalized, is that shrinking? Like if we were to say, is, I don't want to say Christianity is successful, but is the gospel moving forward using those sort of questions as the metric? Uh, how do you guys feel about that? I, I love that because, it, it, you know, like you talk about leadership dynamics and you hear about lead and lag uh, metrics and goals, right? So often in, in the church world, we have these goals that we're, we're more interested in the lag goal, like number of attendances, number of baptisms, number of, uh, you know, budgets, um, things of that nature, number of programs we're operating. They're all just lag goals. They're all just results of whatever we're doing. And we're just trying to keep increasing that number. But rather, effective lead goals are, in fact, looking at that by going, listen, we have a significant suicide rate in, this, in, in our county. We want to attack that problem and find solutions for it. So our goal now is we want to reduce that by 50%, right, um, in, in the next three years or something, however, whatever audacious goal that might be. Now you start directing all of your attention to having that kind of effect and that sort of social change, I think. Um, I think it's incredibly effective because what's going to happen naturally, there will be baptisms. There will be people uh, being a part of new Christ, Christ following communities. There will be people wanting to learn more and, and understand who Jesus is as a result of our efforts and our work in the community. But what if it doesn't put butts in seats, Matt? Then... Who cares? <laughs> <laughs> if it puts them back out on the field and in, the, and, uh, and, and serving and transforming their community, that is the heart, I think, of what we're talking about here in physiology. Yeah. And the, and the challenge here is because it's not a church growth strategy. That's right. Yeah, exactly. It, but, and the challenge is, um, as I'm thinking about this is not to, um, not to try to affect change on some of these major social issues in separation from the proclamation of the gospel. They have to go hand in hand. I mean, Jesus came and the things that he did, the miracles that he performed, the healings that occurred, those went hand in hand with the proclamation of him as Lord and King. And without that, um, then we're not going to see a movement. Uh, it's the, the result of gospel proclamation and the transformation of people's lives necessitates a transformation in society. And so if people are genuinely transformed by the gospel, then society is going to transform. And, um, and we should expect that. And that's, in fact, what we see in, in uh, the Roman province of Asia and then ultimately all over the Roman Empire. Uh, lives were transformed and uh, the, the whole uh, empire changed. Yeah, and I think the tension here is we need to hold that tension between social justice, social gospel versus um, New Testament biblical gospel. I think is what we're trying to trying to hold here in tension. Yeah, exactly. So let's move on to point number four um, of the anatomy of a movement. Uh, you have here is authoritative doctrine. Yes, authoritative doctrine, and by that, you know, I sometimes I I don't always like to use adjectives to describe things that should be understood. 
uh, inherently. Uh, but in this case, I, I think it's needed. Um, we have to make the distinction between authoritative doctrine and just any old doctrine. And um, sometimes we confuse those things. Um, authoritative doctrine is going to focus on our understanding who God is, uh, particularly and specifically our Trinitarian understanding of who God is, the necessity of salvation, the authority of Scripture, um, and and the place of the church in in society. It, there will be other doctrines that are that are developed that um, some would call uh, theologomena. That's a fancy Greek word that just simply means a theological opinion. And uh, th those become secondary in nature. And sometimes what what can derail a movement is when we will concentrate on the theologomena and not the authoritative doctrine. And so we wanted to be sure that we're making that distinction and understanding the distinction between the two and really camping on the majors and, uh, and being charitable on the minors. So what's the different than, difference then between authoritative doctrine and authoritarian doctrine? Yeah, well, good, good. that's a good question, one that I haven't necessarily thought about, but Matt's going to answer it because he's given the thumbs up. No. <laughs> <laughs> I just thought that was a really good question as well. Yeah, it is a good question. Well, um, authoritative doctrine, it, I mean, this is just me making this up off the cuff. As I think of the word authoritarian, that's going to impose belief on someone. Authoritative is going to be foundational. It's going to be what grounds the, that movement and what will propel it uh, forward in uh, it, its growth. I think this is one of the more significant areas of breakdowns for movement as well. I think this is why we have, um, or at least it seems to me, uh, you guys let me know, but I mean, really re reality, we've got a Protestant denomination that we all affiliate with and underneath that are countless sub-denominations all broken apart on this element alone. And that is who has the authoritative doctrine. Yeah. And uh, this is a this is a really sticky point because, and I think honestly, when we go back to some of our earlier conversations that we had um, with as we started the Ephesiology podcast, and uh, that is, we see church planting movements um, in not only the New Testament church, and of course they wrestled through things like heresies and other kinds of doctrinal questions that arose as the movement was gaining steam and. Uh, heresies are starting to come into the church. Um, but even the, the concern today, whenever I talk about this, these ideas and these concepts, what we're seeing uh, globally, uh, everyone's number one question is always going to be, how do you hold to solid doctrine? How do you maintain mm. doctrine? How do you have doctrinal fidelity? Um, and then the question is, well, what, what doctrines do you want them to believe? And which ones do you not want them to believe? Yeah. And I mean, this becomes, I mean, this becomes the instant conversation killer and everyone dismisses it at this point and says, we're just going to keep doing what we're doing because we, this is too difficult of a question to, to answer. Well, then let's put, add this element to it. Oh, as here well. it goes. You, you, well, no, cause you just said it, you said it in terms of like church leadership and you just said it in terms of denominational affiliation and how things are run kind of almost in an ecclesiological manner. Mm -hmm. Well, let's look at this from an evangelical or an evangelism manner. Mm -hmm. How many people aren't joining up churches because they say, so whose, whose doctrine am I supposed to follow? Yeah. Like you yeah. guys spend all of your time pissing and moaning about what you think is accurate or most important. And I can't, I can't 
decide who's right, so I'm just it, not going to get in. Yeah. Believer's baptism, infant baptism. What is it, guys? Get it together. Predestination. Is it right? Yeah. That's not this podcast. Sorry. Yeah, y'all. I know. It's not. But it's just, <laughs> but yeah, the, these are the very questions and the conversations that we, we get into. And now suddenly we're, we're divided and you go one way, I go another way. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, you're exactly right. I, I describe Christianity as really the first, um, I hate to, to mix words, but the, the first postmodern movement in the world. Um, Whoa. And, uh, and, and so that's going back really in, uh, to the Christianization of the Roman Empire when we begin to see this fragmentation of uh, Christianity. So fourth century, you're going back fourth century and saying here it is, postmodernism is already <laughs> taking its hold. Oh, absolutely. I mean, wow. one of the core ideals of postmodernism is this hyper individualism yeah. um, where people will believe whatever they want to believe. And we begin to see that uh, in in the early church in the fourth century. In fact, in, I, I would date it specifically to uh, 451 when we see the first significant split of the church mm. to what became um, the, I don't even know what you call it, but the, the majority church and then the Coptic church. And they, they split over two different views of who of the nature of Christ. Um, and, and from there, then, you know, we, we get to um, the, the beginning of the second um, millennium uh, and right. The second millennium, the beginning of the second millennium and the church splits again, and it becomes the Catholic and the Orthodox church. Right. And then of course we get 500 years later uh, with the reformation. Protestant and, reformation. Yeah. Then that fragments to Lutheranism, Calvinism. Uh, then you have all kinds of other fragmentations to where today, I mean, literally, there are thousands of different denominations who all claim to be right. And it causes people to say, well, who decides? Yeah. That's right. I mean, it seems, uh, and this is obviously a conversation that's bigger than this podcast can contain, um, but I, it would seem that going back to the point of the anatomy of a movement, authoritative doctrine appears to be uh, very critical because we all need to at least be subscribed to what is it that we're believing in and what is it that we're cho- and, and what's shaping us as the movement and as these people. And that obviously is going to be very core to it. So whether you've been a part of any sort of other evangelical Protestant movements of, of the past, you've all subscribed to the same doctrinal statements, whatever that might be. So as we see moving forward, if we want to see a true movement, there needs to be some sort of a unified authoritative doctrine that we all subscribe to. Um, so point number five is uh, produced maturing disciples, movement leaders, and missiological theocentric churches. Yeah, enough said. <laughs> so do, another do that, in, that, you know, yeah. that seems like you're cheating. I don't we're know. Producing <laughs> disciples, we're producing movement leaders, and we're producing missiological theocentric churches. What, what's a movement leader? Yeah, well, a movement leader is going to be somebody that really is focusing on empowering others. Um, is that is that a bishop? Is that the um, <laughs> who is that, Michael? Yeah, who is that? <laughs> Put in guy? some ecclesiological terms that we are that we're somewhat familiar with. The yeah. bishop, the bishop, <laughs> the overseer. Um, yeah, and that's. I mean, that has been probably for me personally. That's been one of the 
biggest revelations for me as I wrote this book. And, uh, and I talk about this in a chapter on leading a movement and what those leaders look like and who they were and how that early church was structured. And so it was fascinating um, for me to look at this model of a, a bishop or overseer, same word, episcopos, um, elders and deacons. And uh, to, to come to the understanding, not just from reading scripture, but reading uh, sources outside of scripture that were using the same terminology. And so, for example, in Aristotle, when he writes the Athenian constitution, he talks about the council of the Areopagus as playing a role as an overseer. And he uses that exact word, the episcopos. Um, and so Episcopos wasn't a new idea uh, to Paul, but it was something that he was borrowing and, uh, and uh, using for the continued growth of uh, the church in Ephesus. It, we see that, that overseer also in Philippi uh, as well. And, and as we get into the first century of the church, we begin to see that model in other places as well. Uh, Ignatius, for example, of Antioch writes about the bishop or overseer, uh, elder, deacon uh, model, that threefold leadership model. But what I, what's important, I, I think, at least it seems to me that in Paul's mind, what's, what is important for these leaders is not uh, what they do, because I think, I think they knew what they were to do. Because they had the model in the Apostle Paul, and they, uh, you know, he a couple of times he says, like First Corinthians eleven one, uh, that be imitators of me as I imitate Christ. Uh, Ephesians chapter five verse one, imitate, be imitators of God as beloved children. And in Paul's mind, that was for everybody: leaders, non-leaders, bishop, elders, deacons. Uh, apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherd teachers, all of you guys are to do this. This is what you do. And so it seems to me that when Paul talks about leadership and these different, um, these different, even if they are roles, um, th that his concern is much more on their character than on what they did uh, for the church. And uh, because, again, I think Paul and these early leaders knew what it was that they were to do. They were about being on God's mission to uh, join with God uh, to see all things united in Christ. So to be a movement leader is not a denominational headship role or a denominational director role that you aspire to one day as another rung in the ladder of the capitalistic <laughs> corporate church ladder, right? But rather one who is of influencer, one who is um, already, who's living out a lot of these values and the things in which we're discussing here today and moving forward by going, this is, this is who we are and this is what we're seeking to produce and, um, and influencing the whole movement. Uh, it right. sounds like what I'm hearing you say. A absolutely. And, and so they became a model for the rest of uh, the believers. Mm -hmm. uh, they were to live their lives on God's mission. Yeah. And, um, and they, they, they did. And as a result, uh, the, the people that they led, led their well, and, lives, lived their right. lives. And that's mission. the, we, we keep seeing that in lots of different uh, books throughout it is that like, uh, again, I'm, I'm in first Thessalonians as a part of our church series. And Paul talks about like, people have heard about your faith how you live, how you are imitating Christ. 
in other churches and other regions. It's spread. So it's working. This imitation of Christ uh, is it's having an impact and, and it's spreading and this is good. Yeah. So keep it up. Yep. I love it, Andrew, because what you're what you are doing is missiological hermeneutics. You're looking at scripture with the eyes of of God as a missionary and his movement continuing to grow. And I, I love that you're seeing that in uh, First Thessalonians. And you're right. I mean, it's if we don't see that in the New Testament, then we're missing something very significant about the grounding of a movement uh, because it is replete from uh, from Matthew to Revelation. God is on a mission, and He is calling us to join Him to be on that mission as well. Mm. Mm. That's good stuff. Well, guys, uh, we've got more to talk about, but we're out of time for today. So let's uh, we'll end part one here of the anatomy of a movement, and we'll pick up part two again next week uh, as we finish off uh, what else, the other components and characteristics that produce and make a movement in those dynamics that go uh, hand in hand with those things. So thanks for the great conversation today and continuing to do theology in community. It is always a blessing and a pleasure to do that with you guys. Same. Amen. Well, for our listeners, thanks for doing theology and community with us here on the Ephesiology Podcast. As always, you can connect with us on ephesiology.com and get uh, access to various resources and, of course, the podcast and the archive uh, for all that we've been talking about and references uh, uh, to which we often discuss about here on the podcast, uh, as well as don't forget to check out the book. Um, and uh, maybe a pre- is there a pre-order uh, site that's going to be available at this time? There is. Michael? I'm right. hoping that by the time this podcast airs, that that is already up. Boom. By the time this podcast is dropped, hopefully you should be able to pre-order the book, um, uh, the Physiology book, which uh, which releases on Leap Day, February 29th uh, this year. So in a few weeks. So we look forward to hopefully you will have an opportunity to pick that up and, uh, and of course, uh, dig in more with us uh, on these concepts. And of course, find us on Facebook uh, at our Facebook page. Uh, just search Physiology. And for uh, Michael, Andrew, and myself, we thank you, and we'll catch you next time on the Physiology Podcast.